And if you would, turn in your Bibles to page 42, which is Genesis 42. As this morning we continue to consider the life of Joseph, the Messiah of the book of Genesis. Joseph's life, Genesis chapter 42, which is page 42 of your Bible. Have you ever noticed, have you ever noticed that most psychics are not particularly well off? You know, you go driving down the street and you see a sign that reads fortunes told here. And usually, almost always, the house is less than impressive. Now, if we are using our brains this morning, this should tell us something, shouldn't it? If that person could really tell the future... Why are they not insanely rich? Why haven't they won millions in sports betting? Why haven't they purchased all the right stocks at all the right times and made a fortune? Of course, the answer is that they cannot tell the future. At best, they are entertainers. At worst, they are deep into the occult. But either way, they are not able to see clearly and reliably the future. If they could, they would be immensely rich and in the employ of every major corporation and nation. But our God is not like that. In fact, the Bible contains numerous specific predictions that have come true in irrefutable historical ways. All of this is meant to remind us that God is indeed orchestrating history. He is not surprised by anything that is happening. Listen to how the Lord describes himself in Isaiah 46. He says, I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes because our lives are so short and our awareness of what is actually happening in our world is so limited. We feel like things are out of control, but over many years, over long periods, you can see God's plan unfolding just as he promised. I begin this way because God has made two clear, irrefutable historical predictions about Abraham's family, at least two that are in view today. First, in Genesis 15, 13, at the beginning of Abraham's story, God told Abraham that his family would become a great nation, but would do so while in captivity in a foreign land. Because God is not a fraud, he even went on to give the exact length of this captivity, 400 years. The second prediction was made to Joseph in two dreams. In these two dreams, God predicted that Joseph's whole family would bow down to him as Lord. Joseph was one of the younger sons, but God predicted and promised that he would rise above them all. You remember that when Joseph shares these dreams with his brothers, they mock him and sell him into slavery. In their minds, they have just ensured that none of Joseph's dreams 
will come true. Joseph, after all, was being groomed by his dad, by Jacob, to take over the family. That's why he had the coat of many colors. It was the coat that marked him out as the head boy. Now they think he won't be around to inherit all that. But what does Romans 8 say? All things, all things work together for good to those who are called of God. And so in the very act of murderous treachery, the brothers actually achieve God's purpose. Joseph goes down into the greatest empire of the time, and by God's grace, he is raised to second in all the kingdom. His wealth and his power are astonishing. It took 20 years. It took 20 years, but God has changed Joseph through suffering Joseph has shown remarkable faithfulness and grown as a man and as a believer. Even the weather now is working out God's good purposes. There's a great famine, and God will use that famine to heal this broken family and to bring glory to his anointed ruler, Joseph. It's a long chapter this morning, so please remain seated as we read together Genesis 42 Verses 1 through 38. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother or full brother, with his other brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said, they said from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there be truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. 
On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he, that is Joseph, turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them and they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, by this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me, then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack, and when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons, if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he, that is Jacob, said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, how thankful we are as we study your word this morning and read it, that we have a heavenly Joseph, an elder brother who is wiser and kinder and greater than any of us. And we do bow the knee to him this morning and confess his name 
and pray that through him you would open your stores of grace and feed us with daily bread. How we need to be encouraged, how we need to be directed and convicted this morning, how we need the distractions and discouragements of this life taken away. Do all that and more now through the preaching of your word, for we pray and ask it in his precious name. Amen. Amen. The first thing you notice in this chapter is that this is a family deeply broken by sin and in a state of real emergency. On the surface, on the surface, the big crisis seems to be the famine. In those days, it was not unusual to starve to death. So this is indeed a huge threat. But if you look below the surface, you will instantly observe that the problems here go much deeper and are much older. This supposedly holy family, which has been chosen by God to bring salvation to the world, is a real mess. They are, in actuality, terribly divided and dysfunctional. If this family was sitting in our church this morning, we would all consider them the most broken and needy family in the room. You can see the devastation of sin in this family with the very first verses of the chapter. Jacob says to his sons, verse 1, Why do you look at one another? Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there. I might put in parentheses here, idiots, that we may live and not die. Put that in modern English. Stop sitting on your hands and do something. Without Joseph, you see, the family doesn't seem to have the wisdom to act decisively. You might remember earlier in our study of Joseph's life, we noted how Joseph brought a bad report of his brothers to his father and how the brothers hated him for that. And remember, when the brothers sold Joseph into slavery, in that context, Joseph had come to sort of check up on them, the selfish pride of the brothers and their propensity for violence and laziness had robbed the family of the one best equipped to pilot them through this crisis. It has also left them divided as a family, or to be more accurate, more divided than they already were. Notice verses 3 and 4. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. What's going on here? Why is Jacob holding back Benjamin? As you read this whole chapter in context, what becomes clear is that Jacob does not trust his ten sons with Benjamin. He isn't primarily afraid of the Egyptians. He's afraid of his other sons. He makes this clear again at the end of the chapter in a really sort of disturbing statement. In verse 38, Jacob says to his ten sons, My son, that is Benjamin, shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead. That's Joseph, who he believes is dead. And he, Benjamin, is the only one left. 
To understand what is happening here in chapter 42, go with me for just a moment back to Jacob's parents, Isaac and Rebekah. They have a great love story, and things begin very beautifully. Isaac is a man of faith who went up on the altar when Abraham commanded him. He's a child of promise born by a miracle to aged Sarah. He and Rebekah fall in love at first sight. It's instant. It's beautiful. But then they struggle to have children. But by God's grace, Rebecca is enabled to have twin boys. And that's where the trouble begins in this family. Because Isaac loved Esau, the older twin, and Rebecca loved Jacob. And they chose favorites and divided their family. Isaac's refusal to listen to God and his wife led him to foolishly prefer Esau, even when it was crystal clear that Esau did not love God or have any intention of carrying on the family faith. On the other side, Rebecca's scheming with Jacob, her disobedience of her husband ended up destroying her family. It led to Jacob's exile. Rebecca's sin, trying to control her husband by deceiving him, tragically forces Jacob to flee and move in with Rebecca's brother, Uncle Laban, who reinforces everything that is bad in Jacob. It was Uncle Laban then, you will recall, who tricked Jacob into marrying his oldest daughter, Leah. A week later, just a week later, Jacob was finally given Rachel, the younger daughter he had loved and worked for. Now, tragically, tragically, Jacob's home is divided just like his parents' home was divided. The old sin has passed on to a new generation. The two sister wives, Leah and Rachel, are in constant conflict, and it's never resolved. No matter how hard Leah tried, Rachel was always the favorite, and the favoritism continued and poisoned everything and everyone. And that's why, you see, Jacob is so attached to Joseph and Benjamin. That is why Joseph had the coat of many colors, a garment that marked him as chief over his brothers. He was the biological son of Rachel. Even though Leah was the first wife, technically, Jacob always considered his beloved Rachel to be his true wife. Rachel gave him Joseph and Benjamin. Jacob is doing what we so often do. We don't mean to. We don't mean to. But we so often perpetuate the old sins of our parents, of our families. We just keep them. And they poison everything. Well, Jacob's obvious preference for Joseph ultimately incited the other sons to sell him into slavery. Although Jacob doesn't know for certain, he probably has come over the years to suspect that his sons had something to do with Joseph's disappearance. And so now he will not let Benjamin out of his sight. And so you see the words of verse 38 where Jacob says to the ten of them, My son, my first son, Benjamin, shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, 
And he is the only one left. Jacob is saying to these boys, I only have two first family sons, Joseph and Benjamin. One is dead. Now you want to take the other one? No way. Jacob is not alone in this fear. If you get this sad story, you can begin to understand why Joseph is so intent on seeing Benjamin. Did you notice that? Joseph's goal in everything he does with the brothers is to make them bring Benjamin to him safely. Why? Because Benjamin is his full, his only full brother, same mother, same father. And he is rightly concerned for his brother's safety. After all, if they were willing to sell him into slavery, almost kill him, what might they do to the little boy who is now dad's favorite and Rachel's last biological son. Now we can and could feel sorry for these 10 other brothers. What must it have been like to know that you had the wrong mother and that you would never be dad's favorite? Some of us have actually lived that experience. How much it, how it must have hurt to watch as their father preferred always Benjamin and even referred to him as his last son, the one left to him. But before we feel sorry for these 10 boys, we must recall that they have allowed their dad to believe for 20 years that Joseph is dead. They've hidden the truth for 20 years. They've watched their father mourn and suffer. They've shown no compassion for him or for Joseph. They've not confessed their sin. They've not made any attempt to recover their brother. We can only imagine what this unconfessed sin did to these men's relationships with each other, with their father, and most importantly, with their God. I think it's safe to assume that at this point, they probably don't even trust each other anymore. And so when they get back from Egypt, when they get back from Egypt and a brother is missing, Simeon, right? He's been taken by Joseph and they have all their money with them and the food too. What does everyone think? Here we go again. You see that in verses 35 and 36. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, what? They were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this, everything is against me. Jacob just assumes, you see, that his violent, lazy and dishonest sons have pulled a fast one. And you know what? He's justified in thinking that two of these boys killed an entire town in revenge over the assault on their sister. One of these boys, Judah, slept with his daughter-in-law, and all of them have conspired for 20 years to withhold the truth from their dad. You see, it isn't just a famine, is it? It's a deeper plague that is in each of our lives as well. It is sin, and it's all its poison. Meanwhile, Back in Egypt, Joseph is walking with God, unlike the other ten. However, notice he has made no attempt to communicate with his family. 
Instead, at the end of chapter 41, Joseph has his first son and he names him Manasseh, which means literally forgetful or I want to forget or I have forgotten because he wants to forget what has happened to him. He wants to be away. He wants to be separated from this wicked family and from all the sin and misery that he feels when he thinks about his brothers. And so he has made, through his great wealth and great power, no attempt, no attempt to get back in touch with them. Now, brothers and sisters, do you see what's going on here? The biggest threat was not the famine. The biggest threat was always and had always been their sin. The famine just brought out what was already there. Over the past 20 years, they had found ways to avoid all this mess. But now they have to act as one. They have to work together. There's a crisis. But the crisis is revealing a deeper crisis, a deeper wound. And this is exactly what is going on. This is exactly what is going on in your life and in the world right now. The crisis on the top no matter how big, is never the deepest crisis. It's not COVID that is our main world problem. It's the sinful ways we all deal with it. It's what the crisis reveals about our institutions, our world, our hearts, our society. Some people have shown no interest or concern for others. Their hearts have been revealed. They live for the bottom line. Others, Pharisees, boast in their conformity to regulation and look down on those who don't meet their standards of public righteousness. They revel in feelings of superiority, intoxicated with self. Still others choose to live in constant fear with no end in sight. Until God makes life entirely safe, they won't budge. And there are a hundred other things that are being revealed. The greatest question we as Christians should be asking right now is this. What has this pandemic revealed about me, about my heart? What ugly things have grown in the dark that are now being exposed? A former professor of mine had a simple picture to express this. He told us to imagine a glass of water sitting on the table. You shake the table and what happens? Water comes out, right? When crisis hits, when a famine or a pandemic hits, what's inside you splashes up and splashes out. And that's what's happening in Jacob's family, all the old divisions, all the sins that haven't been dealt with, all the selfishness is now being manifest and all through this famine that God has created. Now, if the sermon ended here, we might be a little bit better informed about ourselves, but we would also be rather hopeless, wouldn't we? We might say to each other, what an ugly chapter filled with the ugly power of sin. But there is a second thing I want you to notice in this chapter. We see a pandemic. We see a famine and what it is revealing about a divided, broken and sinful family. But we also see Joseph and behind Joseph 
in greater beauty, if you can see it, we see Jesus himself. From our viewpoint, there is no hope for a family like this. But in reality, there is hope for this family because in the midst of all this ugliness stands a chosen man of God who has been prepared for 20 years for this very moment. Joseph is the anointed of God, filled with wisdom and grace. He has suffered and remained faithful. He was tempted, but did not give in. As the ten brothers arrive in Egypt, they meet this wise and gracious governor. Because 20 years have passed and Egyptian fashions were quite different than those of Canaan, the brothers do not recognize their brother as he speaks to them through a translator. But even if they had recognized Joseph, even if they had known that it was Joseph, they would have been compelled to bow to him as they do in verse 6. And Joseph, in verse 9, remembered the dreams that he had dreamed. I think this verse, where they bow to him as God had promised in the dreams, marks the beginning of real change, of real hope, of real salvation for this family. It all begins when the brothers kneel and God's promise, a promise that looked impossible, comes to fulfillment. We can't know for sure. We can't know for sure. But I think this may be the turning point. Whatever Joseph may have been tempted to do to his brothers, in that moment, seeing them prostrate before him, seeing God's promises come true, he made a decision. He would not take vengeance. Rather, he would walk wisely and work for their ultimate good. In verses 6 through 25, Joseph begins then to save his brothers, not just from the famine. He does that. He gives them plenty of grain and returns their money. But more importantly, he will work to change their hearts. He puts them in a series of situations that are designed to remind them of their sin and give them the opportunity to repent he does this in two different interviews with them. First, in verses 6 through 17, the first interview, he speaks roughly to them. Verse 7 reads this way. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. He treats them as spies and confines them for three days. He calls them dishonest men. They're pretending to be brothers from a family needing food, but they are actually a contingent of spies, he claims. Of course, the brothers, right, they, they protest that this isn't true, but then something really wonderful happens. They begin to learn from what God is doing in their lives. Their consciences are finally awakened in this trial. They want to say, they want to say, we don't deserve this rough treatment. But suddenly they're able, finally, probably for the first time in 20 years, to confess, to confess. And so finally, a wonderful moment of grace comes in verse 21. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty. Maybe not of what he's telling us right now, but we are guilty. We aren't honest men. We aren't good men. We are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us 
when he was in the pit and he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. Do you see what Joseph has done in his wisdom? He's put them just for a few days in his position. And God has used that. The Holy Spirit has used that to begin to change their hearts. When he was in the pit, when Joseph was in the pit, he cried to them for help. They shut their ears. Now they're crying out and not being heard. And by God's grace, they make the connection. And they finally say together, we are guilty. After three days, Joseph pulls them up. He makes a deal with them in verse 18 and following. And the deal, again, is so wise. He gives them grain. He even gives their money back to them. But then he says, I'm going to keep one of your brothers here. Let's just see if you'll come back for him. Let's see if anything is really different. So in verse 24, he takes Simeon and binds him as you would a slave. And he, he is asking the question, really, will they leave their brother Simeon in the pit as they left Joseph? At the same time, and this is so clever and so wise, Joseph also ensures that they will not harm Benjamin. Remember, he doesn't know who they are at this point. He's been away for 20 years. He needs to ensure the safety of his full brother, Benjamin. So he makes their return contingent on Benjamin's safe delivery. Joseph is so wise here. He realizes that this is not just a matter of forgiveness. In fact, I think Joseph had already forgiven them. If Joseph had hate in his heart, he could have taken vengeance so easily. This isn't about revenge. It's not about revenge. It's about finding out what was in their hearts. It was about reconciliation with them. Some of you know I've taught through this before. Forgiveness, forgiveness is a one-person deal. Forgiveness is when you choose to make a commitment, a promise, to not hold someone's debt over them. Forgiveness is you saying to someone, I will not hold this against your account. That person may agree or disagree. That person may be dead or alive. You can still forgive them. Forgiveness is something that happens in your heart. But reconciliation is not a one-person thing, is it? It isn't a one-time thing. To fully heal these broken relationships, this family, Joseph and these brothers, must be given the opportunity to repent and to change. And the coming weeks, we'll see that's exactly what happens. God will use Joseph to heal this hopelessly broken family. Joseph could have simply revealed himself that day. He wanted to do that. Remember, he, he turned aside and he wept in verse 24 because he just wanted to be reunited, kind of get it over with. But as a wise savior and deliverer, he knew more was needed. A superficial cure would only leave the poison deeply buried. A family so destroyed by the power of sin must be healed deeply. And so I think he does what most of us could not have done. He lets them go. He lets them go without ever telling them. He lets them go without ever knowing if he would see them again. But he does that to work in them a deeper healing. And here's the key. This is how Jesus deals with us, isn't it? 
His grace overflows to us. He stuffs our bags with food. He has promised that we will never hunger or thirst. We come to him and we find our money back in our sack. We buy grain without money and without price. We feed on him and the whole world feeds on him. And his stores are never empty because he is a wiser Joseph. Yet he also speaks to us roughly sometimes, doesn't he? Are you in a spot now? Have you been in a spot before maybe in your life where your Savior seems to speak roughly to you? Have you had that experience? Maybe you even think to yourself, as the brothers did, is this revenge? Is God revenging himself on me for some long ago sin? Has he finally run out of patience with me? Have you felt that way? If you haven't, hold on a minute, you will. Every believer has times when our Joseph, the Lord Jesus, speaks roughly to us. Jacob ends our chapter with that expression, that feeling. Jacob has wrestled with the angel, remember? He's received God's blessing. And yet as he looks out at his life, he struggles to see how this can be so. He's lost his beloved wife, Rachel. He's lost his son, Joseph who he knows is by far the best of his children. He's living through a terrible famine with no relief in sight. He is still a sojourner like his father and grandfather. And so in frustration, a frustration we have all felt, he says something we often say in our hearts, maybe not out loud here at church, but in our hearts. Verse 36b, all this has come against me. In modern English, we say, my life has gone all wrong. Nothing is working out for me. Everything seems to be against me. When you feel that way, and you will, remember this chapter. Remember this moment. That though your Joseph, your Joseph, may be speaking rough with you right now, behind the scenes, his heart is all for you. He only hides his smile for a time that he might do you some greater good. No one wrote this better than William Cooper, that friend and parishioner of um, John Newton. He was a man with real mental illness, significant mental illness, suicidal depression. And he wrote this timeless line, Behind a frowning providence, behind the worst things in your life, he that is God hides a smiling face. Or here again, the words of Paul, we know, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. One day, not too long from now, Jacob and his ten sons will see how wrong they were to doubt God's love and faithfulness. Everything was actually working together for their ultimate good. And one day, not too long from now, every misery you have ever had will be unmasked. And behind everyone, even the ones you feared the most, You will find a smiling Joseph, a loving shepherd, a friend closer than a brother. Amen.
Let's pray. Father, we could ask for no better shepherd and no better brother than the one you have given to us. And we know that even when he hides the smile of his face for a moment, it's only that he might do us some greater good, some deeper good. And we know, Father, that you through him are working all of our afflictions for our good and your glory. Help us to believe those things in the midst of famine, in the midst of discouragement, in the midst of depression, in the midst of disappointment, when we are tempted to believe that all things are against us, remind us that through Christ all things are for us. Give to your people this encouragement and this faith and make it unshakable, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.